Hey, it's Andrew, and today on the show we have Patrick Thompson, co-founder and CEO of Iteratively. In this episode, we talked about why Patrick made the leap to start his own business, how 200 interviews over six months of customer discovery helped him find the biggest data-related pain points software teams have, and how Iteratively helps solve it. We also discussed what it was like to work in the growth team at Atlassian in the early days, the difference Patrick sees in picking and prioritizing quick wins versus long-term bets to work on at a later stage company versus an early stage startup, and how partnerships and tool integrations can help increase long-term retention. As usual, I'm excited to hear what you think of this episode, and if you have any feedback, I would love to hear from you. You can email me directly on andrew at churn.fm. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and enjoy the episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Avrio a collaborative insights platform built directly into your workflow. With a browser extension and web app, Avrio provides a new way to capture and share data analysis, user research, and learnings directly in context with your team. From data dashboards, Google Slides, and Slack threads, to inside of apps and team members' heads, Avrio captures all of your insights and creates a single source of truth. Visit avrio.com to learn how you can maximize your team's collective knowledge with Avrio. This is Churn.fm, the podcast for subscription economy pros. Each week, we hear how the world's fastest growing companies are tackling churn and using retention to fuel their growth. How do you build a habit-forming product? We crossed over that magic threshold to negative churn. You need to invest in customer success. It always comes down to, to retention and engagement. Completely bootstrap, profitable, and growing. Strategies, tactics, and ideas brought together to help your business thrive in the subscription economy. I'm your host, Andrew Michael, and here's today's episode. Hey, Patrick, welcome to the show. Hey, Andrew, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. For the listeners, Patrick is the CEO and co-founder of Iteratively, a smart tracking plan that allows you to capture customer data you trust. Prior to founding Iteratively, Patrick was a design manager at Atlassian, where he led a team of designers on the relaunch of Jira software and also worked on the growth team focused on improving acquisition, retention, and virality. So my first question for you, Patrick, is what made you take the leap to start your own business and why did you pick the problem you've chosen to solve? Yeah, Andrew, great question. So to give you a little bit of background, I've always wanted to go work on my own startup and I had the opportunity to go work with my uh, really good friend who I worked with previously, actually at his company, the end of 2018, beginning 2019. So it was just a good time for me. I was living in Sydney and decided to pull the trigger and move back to Seattle. To give you a bit of background on actually how we started iteratively, we didn't know what problem we wanted to solve off the bat. We knew who we wanted to solve problems for which was other software teams. So Andre and I decided to spend as long as it took to understand the pain points and problems that these teams face. So we spent about six months doing customer discovery. And the number one problem through over 200 interviews at over hundred companies at the time was companies not trusting the data that they're captured related to uh, customer data. So that's what we set out to go solve. Very cool. And uh, so 200 interviews, it's quite intense. What did that process look like, like to get to the point where you found the problem you were working on? Did you have any sort of core thesis behind what you were looking for and try to hone in that with any specific personas you were speaking to? What was the methodology that you got you to this point? Yeah, definitely. So we definitely followed a couple of different frameworks. One of them is the focus framework by Justin Wilcox. 
who's one of our advisors for iteratively, and the other is sort of like the Steve Blank, typical lean customer development methodology. We decided we wanted to interview traditionally product managers, engineers, data analysts, growth people to understand the pain points that they had that really kept them from achieving success in their roles. So each interview had a template, specifically trying to understand what success looked like for the person within their, their company, what was keeping them from achieving that success, and if they were looking for existing solutions in the market or what duct tape that they had in place to really help them succeed. And overall, we ended up seeing a few themes emerge from this relatively quickly. Throughout this entire process, we were 100% dedicated to interviews and, and synthesis of both primary and secondary research. So we didn't code, we didn't do any design work. Our full-time job was just talking to people, which generally speaking was extremely enjoyable. And it's pretty much where I spend most of my time nowadays as well as this process isn't over for us. We're continually doing customer development and research and the core to how we build product iteratively. That's awesome. And I think that's actually what I'm doing right now with you is doing a bit of customer research and one of the purposes of the podcast. But interesting as well. So like you landed on a problem then, uh, people don't trust the data. That's one of the biggest pain points. Like, what is what, what would you say in your experience there has been some of the biggest issues you've uncovered? And obviously, I think one of them would be uh, your product that you're building. But what are some of the common themes you noticed in like the lack of trust in data? Yeah, generally, when trust came up as a concern, it came up relatively broadly in context to different types of data. We had a lot of folks talking about trust in their Salesforce data or trust within the data inside their data warehouse or things breaking or not being able to access the data or privacy concerns with the data that they they had or who had access to this data. Being able to obviously, you know, data silos is a big issue. And we learned a lot about sort of data observability and data cataloging and how a lot of sort of tools or teams are trying to apply good engineering practices, SDLC practices to data today. Tools like DBT and Snowplow Analytics emerging has really helping spearhead a lot of this and tools like Iterly as well. And what we really wanted to do when we, we looked at the broad market on really what was keeping folks up at night and thought, generally speaking, that the, the problems were really broad. And for us as a Building a company, you want to make sure that you have a really narrow beachhead that you can actually go effectively address. So our first primary focus was on what was the type of data that we actually wanted to help teams manage, help them wrangle and, and take some sort of control over. And for us, that was really related to clickstream data, so user telemetry. And the reason that we decided to do this is we saw a lot of companies using tools like Segment or MParticle or Heaps or Mixed Panels or the Amplitudes of the world. And regardless of what tool that they ended up using, all these teams really struggled with defining, instrumenting, and actually verifying the data that they had. And because this was such a broad problem, within the interviews that we did and the level of pain was so deep there wasn't really anybody solving this out there today a lot of companies were building homegrown solutions or using spreadsheets or confluence pages that we thought of this as relatively greenfield space that we can go after that would you know give us a foothold into the broader analytics market yeah absolutely i think i can attest to that as well as a challenge like we face similarly at hotjar where i work now and one of the things we actually did about 18 months now ago was just overhaul our whole analytics stack and start fresh and start with a good tracking plan in place 
just because it got to the point where nobody had trust in the data. We were adding events left and right, no like practices put in place and data governance uh, set up from the beginning. So you do tend to get that big mess when then at the end of the day, everybody's seeing all these different event names and some events being duplicated, but just being spelt incorrectly. Or at some point, it just became a big mess. And uh, I can definitely see the pain uh, that you're trying to solve here. And we ultimately, actually, we went with Segment because I obviously we're going through this and Segment themselves, I think, has protocols, mm-hmm. which if I'm like, understand your product correctly is part of what you offer. But maybe you want to let the audience know a little bit more about what it really is and how you help customers then uh, get trust out of their data. Yeah, definitely. So to, to just touch back on, I think Brian Balfoy says it best when he calls it the de- you know, the data death spiral, where once you have one paper cut around trust within your organization, these things compound and eventually no one ends up using or looking at the data and all decisions are, are folks are falling back onto their gut, which as we know, is not a great thing for an organization. <laughs> yeah. To so talk a little bit more how the solution, how iteratively as a product works, we actually integrate with tool. So we're a schema registry. So think about iteratively as GitHub for your analytics. You can go into our tool instead of using a spreadsheet to define all of your analytics, you use iteratively to define sort of the metrics and events and properties that you care about as a business. And then we have a developer toolkit that the, your engineers on the team use that really helps do two things. One, it helps ensure that the data that you're capturing is correct. So all of the schemas that are defined inside of our tool Uh, become strongly typed events on an SDK that we code gen for your development team. Lastly, we help make analytics testable. So we integrate into your existing unit tests and 10 tests to really help provide what was traditionally untested code for teams to make it tested. And we integrate into CI, CD. It really helps avoid a lot of the problems when a developer refactors some code and they accidentally drop an event or things change over time. There's an entire workflow behind PMs and analysts and data scientists defining the events that the business cares about to the engineers, instrumenting them. And then lastly, we really close the loop and then report back in all of the the inconsistencies and errors that we detect to really help give you some sort of health report on your overall tracking. We integrate with tools like Mixpanel, Amplitude, and Segment to really sync the schemas back and forth. So any of the the schemas that are defined inside of Iteratively get uploaded to tools like Segment and Mixpanel and Amplitude so that all that context is shared across your tools. In the context of Segment protocols, they're they're solving a very similar problem to Iteratively. And you have similar things with Amplitude Taxonomy and Mixpanel Lexicon and and M-Particle Data Master. This is a big problem that all organizations are, are facing. From our perspective, we're very much an agnostic tool. We're very much focused on the collaboration and the workflow and the, the versioning behind schemas. For most of these tools, it's very much sort of uh, an add-on. But yeah, for us, yeah. Uh, the, the companies that we're trying to help are very much focusing on data quality as a thing outside of one particular tool, but agnostic of you know the data that they're sending to their data warehouse or to segment or to mixed panel directly. Yeah, makes a lot of sense as well. And you can definitely see that it's not an add-on product. I think just uh, going through the sites and looking at like what you've been building, I can see it's quite a lot more progressed than some of the other solutions I've seen on the market specifically solving this problem, which is a big pain point and getting it right and scaling and also not being a blocker. Uh, I think for engineering mm-hmm. teams, like the worst thing you want to be doing is like having people wait to get tracking approved so they can actually run experiments or they can build new products. Very interesting. 
And then let's talk a little bit about this. So you, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you were at Atlassian and then you decided to leave. Not sure what you were going to work on yet, but just really dug into the custom interviews and uh, you figured it out now with it's really, this is it. Let's rewind a little bit and go back to Atlassian days. And I think we were chatting just before the show. You were also working with the previous guest, Sean Klaus at the time at Atlassian, working in the growth team. What was that like in the early days working in the growth team? And at that time, what was your role? Yeah, definitely. Yes, I joined Atlassian as a designer. Shortly thereafter, I ended up getting promoted to design manager on growth. I think the best way to recap my experience at Atlassian was probably the fastest and most impactful learning opportunity that I've had outside of being a co-founder. It was yeah. probably the best company I've worked for. And I, I learned a ton from working with Sean and, and generally the broader, the broader growth team there. And there's some really good folks there as well. Who I highly respect, and Alassian is a, a great company that's done some amazing things, and I was I'm glad to have had a, a small part along that broader journey. My time on growth was was great. Like I am very analytical focused, and I'm very happy to be working on a an analytics startup at I this point. Say, I think there's to be if you <laughs> starting an analytics startup. It's... Yeah, it's a good fit, good founder fit, and. And when working on growth, I think it was uh, very much aligned to my skills uh, as well. So I really was focusing on what is the customer value that we're delivering and how are we not just optimizing the the core experience, uh, specifically related to improving things like virality and retention and reducing churn, but like how are, what are some of the big rocks strategically that we want to be working on that are going to have long-term impact that you you can't necessarily measure in the form of a a simple A-B experiment. I, I really liked the the process behind working on growth at Alassian and then some of the big bets that we took specifically that are, are now starting to have a compounding impact for the business. Yeah, this is a very interesting topic. We discussed it as well recently with Angel Steger, who's a director of design at Facebook uh, currently and worked previously at Pinterest and Dropbox. And one of the things that came up was this concept of balancing between quick wins and long-term bets and what's measurable and what's not, and also making sure you're always protecting the end user experience as a whole and not optimizing for short-term gains. I think this typically obviously comes when you get to the scale and size of these types of companies in Atlassian, but maybe you want to talk us through a little bit about this in the context of a growth team, because I think maybe what the initiatives that you work on at a stage at Atlassian is versus like an early stage series A uh, startup and your experiment and growth programs are going to look slightly different, if not completely different. What are some of the type of work you're talking about now in terms of these bigger long-term bets? And then what would be some of the shorter term wins that you would be focusing on? Yeah, good example. I can give some context also at Alaskan, specifically how we thought about it from both the small-term bets and, and large-term rocks. When we think about generally Jira as a product, we spent a lot of time early days in growth trying to optimize the experience for, for new users to get them not just activated, but, but retained on the product. And over time, obviously, you get some sort of diminishing returns to where it all comes down to local maxima. And so we decided that in order for us to have sort of an oversized impact, we'd have to go redouble down on improving the overall product experience and not just focusing on optimizations, but rethinking Jira from the ground up, which is what led us to go spend years and years to actually invest in redoing Jira software, which is now known as next-gen Jira. And it's a complete step change in the overall experience 
which allowed us to build a new foundation at which we can then go start to optimize the, the core experience. And there's other initiatives that we had at Elastine specifically around virality and making the product more easily shareable and trying to figure out what are the entities that can be shared and how do you get folks easily onboarded into the organization instead of having everything be an admin permission, changing it down to where you're actually pushing power down into the, the folks who actually need that control, which is typically the, the team members within a project or within an organization. So like all these initiatives really ended up layering on top of each other to to really getting an uh, outsized impact on the overall growth of the business. And when you think about how that comparison is at a a very late stage post-IPO company to Series A, it's very similar but different in the context of even iteratively, we're making a lot of small bets to to improve the overall experience. We're, We're listening to customer feedback. We're running formalized hypotheses and validation. And we're making a lot of big bets long-term that are hopefully going to make it so it's easier for us to go from a seed stage company to a series A and series B. And traditionally, when I talk to other founders at our stage or one or two stages ahead of us, the hardest problem for them is really trying to understand the growth model and figuring out all the inputs and outputs that are going to drive long-term growth. You're very resource-constrained at an early-stage startup versus at a later-stage company it's very it's easier to get access to resources depending on the company. You know, at Alassian, you know, it's very much a culture of being able to pitch initiatives and get funding. At a startup, you're constantly pitching initiatives and trying to get funding. Jeez, the risk reward scenario is much different, and then the appetite for failure is much different as well. So it's one of the things where my recommendation to folks who to move fast, who like the opportunity for growth, is go work at that seed stage, series A, series B company. Your opportunity for learning is much more more aligned with the long-term interest of the company. And then when you think about companies like Alassian, that was my MBA, so to speak. That was where I, I went to fine-tune my skills to where I can actually then go prepare to do a company coming out of that. And I've been very happy with the, the overall lessons learned that I had coming out of that organization. Very cool. You, you touched on one thing, and I definitely want us to go a little bit deeper on this point because... Uh, for me, like Atlassian is one of those companies that has one of the most amazing land and expand strategies where they're able to start off with a small individual within a team in a company and then expand that account to get the whole entire organization using it at some point. How much of a focus was this around your work and what are some of the things you potentially learned along the way on this journey? Was there any sort of key insights that you learned along the way while experimenting your way to try and increase adoption across an organization? Yeah, there's definitely a lot of insights and, and lessons learned. So just to give you some context, I spent about six months of my time at Alassian specifically focused on virality. And that was a relatively big bet within the organization. So I think when I was there, it was, it was probably it a team of... Off big time. Uh, yeah. yeah, it was when I was there, I think it was a team of six or seven. And now they, they have a full time, I think, multiple squads focusing on virality. And obviously Alassian is the the... The, the typical example using when companies use product-led growth and talk about the flywheel and how do you get it spinning and how do you start with one and move to 10 and 100 and then 1,000. And generally speaking, there's a lot of folks who've talked about the flywheel. So I won't spend a lot of time time on that. But when you think about virality as an initiative within organizations, you see a lot of companies, the notions, the, the air tables uh, of today, bake that in from the start. It's really easy to invite your team to start with one person, share a link, get them involved as early on as possible. 
we ran a lot of experiments focusing on viralities as part of the onboarding flow. And I think we, we optimized it relatively, relatively well. And what we saw is that generally speaking, starting as a team was much stronger correlation with retention than anything else. When you start as an individual, even though it's really easy to invite, but when you start as a team, you've already made the, the decision of like, okay, great. This is the tool that we have. And you're actually putting yourself out there from a social, expending social capital to actually get folks on board in. When I look at the work that we did at Elastian around being able to easily invite external folks, not just folks within your own domain, being able to share links to, to Jira, be able to share links to Confluence, all these things generally helped not just increase virality for one product, but also get you exposed to other products within the Elastian portfolio. I think that's one of the biggest differentiators across most teams when they think about virality is they're really focusing on their core product. But when you have a product like, let's assume Jira here, in context to being integrated with a tool GitHub, which is even outside of the Elastian ecosystem, and then integrated within a tool like Slack, you're really just building and compounding the overall value that the tool is providing. But you're also increasing, so you're increasing value, but you're also increasing overall exposure to other folks who might not be exposed to the work that the team is doing. And then they'll get brought into the organization. And all these things really do help increase long-term retention for your product. So I, I think generally speaking to recap it, I think when you think about partnerships and potential integrations, I think that as a, a very much a one plus one equals three situation for, for organizations. I don't think they spend enough time really trying to develop good, strong integrations with auxiliary tools from the get-go. Interesting. And so working then on the six months uh, yourself when it came to uh, sort of the virality components, you mentioned sort of integrations being a way to get in front of more people and get more people invited. But was anything specifically like when it came to maybe perhaps user personas that you were working on, mm -hmm. any sort of research that you tried to look into to figure out, okay, what does the first time experience look like? What could we do to encourage uh, new users to be invited? Was any specific time in that uh, user's lifecycle that made sense to get people to invite uh, to the account? Like maybe talk us a little bit through some of the ideas that you were throwing around to increase since being sent. And uh... Definitely. So I think one of the earlier experiments that we did was optimizing the invite email. So specifically email that you'd receive when you were invited into an organization. That could be from somebody assigning an issue to you and you were falling outside of the organization. That could be from somebody inviting you into a project. Originally, the email template was very generic. It had no notion of personalization about who was the person inviting you, what was the context. There's no ability for them to even include a message of why they were inviting you into the project converted but didn't convert well enough and over time we ended up adding things like the invitees name and then adding the invitees avatar and then allowing them to personalize or add a message to the invited email and all of these things over time compounded into i think if i remember right doubling or tripling the the, the recipient rate of actually getting them back into creating an account so those are all easy ways and easy wins um, the other thing that we did was uh, DRS, Domain Restricted Signup, was another huge win for us. So being able to allow you as an admin to configure your organization to allow new users from within certain emails, that had a huge impact. And that's a default. That's basically a, an on-byte default now for most organizations. The other thing specifically related to virality that worked really well for us is we, we did spend a lot of time doing research 
and actually journey mapping the entire experience from end to end. So we had massive, you know, 30 meter long whiteboards that had every single screen and touch point for a customer from literally day zero from when they land on, you know, lastian.com to day seven, day 14, to when they're, they're, they're hopefully activated into the product. And so our goal was to go through each one of these specific scenarios and outline when was the most ideal time for them to potentially invite a, a user. And what we saw is we, we added it into the onboarding flow. So I think you would create your organization, you would then immediately get prompted to invite three users. This is very similar onboarding sequence that Slack and other companies have at this point as well. And that increased that increased invites as well. I don't think it had much of an impact on seven-day retention for us, but it did increase the number of invites sent. And subsequently, when you started creating issues, our goal was to get you to actually assign that work to your teammate. And that actually increased the activation. So our, our goal, obviously, as a, as a growth team was we looked at a couple different metrics. And we typically look at suites of metrics, not a particular uh, golden metric, so to speak. The things that we were typically interested in were long-term retention and then activation metrics. And we had different types of activation metrics. And obviously, the number of invites being sent out as well, the number of issues created as a proxy for value within the organization. And so for virality, our goal is when companies or when folks took actions that would likely lead them to wanting to invite their team, obviously a project has been created, you know, issues have been created, work has been transitioned. Specifically, you can think of a developer transitioning work from a to-do column to a QA column. Hey, should you invite the QA team? Things like that. These are all sort of the scenarios at which we tried to analyze when was the right time when it's a specific right time to actually prompt the user to invite their teammate. And so when we think about, generally speaking, uh, user onboarding or uh, feature onboarding, what was the right time? What was the right message? What was the specific right trigger to actually prompt them to take an action? Because all these actions over time, all these messages over time, they're always competing with each other. So we wanted to make sure that we experimented not with them just one-on-one, but as part of a holistic suite of messages that we're sending the user because we wanted to be respectful to the user's attention and time. I'll pause there. Yeah, I know I was going to keep going because it's all very interesting what you're saying. Let's quickly ask a little question on that last point though. So then you're running experiments trying to, with like email notifications, trying to improve like activation metrics or invites, but you mentioned like suites of emails. So you weren't really testing an email in isolation. You would test like an email sequence against another email sequence. Is that correct? Actually, yeah, we actually had, uh, we had, and I don't know how much Sean touched on this in your, your last interview, but we actually had a few different teams at Alaska. One of them was the engagement platform team, specifically focusing on building out uh, capabilities within the organization to actually test not just individual messages, but sequences of messages to specific segments of users. So uh, the goal, obviously, which is you don't want to speak with a microphone, but you want to speak with a whisper. <laughs> you want to make sure that your message is so personal that like you can almost guarantee that a uh, person who receives that message is going to take the action that which you're trying to get them to convert to. So our goal is to be able to send these like rightly timed messages that were so personal to the user that it felt very natural versus typically when you're using, and what we see a lot of teams using today is they speak very loud, either within product or within email. Uh, that wasn't what we wanted to have. You know, some of the design principles that we wanted to have was, was be a lot more friendly and respectful of the user's time and attention and make sure that, you know, when we actually sent them a message that it was really helpful for them, not just for us. So we built an entire system. We, we explored things like multi-armed bandits and, and really trying to figure out 
hey, when we have a catalog of all these messages that a potential user could see, what is the right message for them to see? And it could be in the context, it could be a a user invite email, or it could be teaching them about a new feature that is correlated with retention based off two or three features that they've already been engaged with. Or it could be that, you know, they ended up looking at a, a landing page on agile software development. So maybe we should teach them about things like Scrum or Kanban inside the product. And so all these inputs would basically fit into a system. And then based off past lookalike audience targeting would then allow us to determine what message that user should see in real time. And I think that was super important for us. And one of the things that, you know, we talk or folks talk about quite a lot, which is even having those capabilities in-house, it's really hard to find an off-of-the-shelf solution that can do that. So we had to spend years building out not just this platform, but things like A-B testing software, analytics software. We had to spend a lot of time really just building a tool chest that we had as a growth team to actually go be able to move the levers that we wanted to move. And it's one of the things when you think about companies like Atlassian, their needs are so unique a lot of the times because they're 12 plus products that they're that they have and a lot of the work that we wanted to do around cross flow and there's not many off the shelf solutions that can do that. And so when we thought about specifically virality, it wasn't just virality from one within one existing product, it was virality across our product suites and discovering cross sell and how how do you discover new products that would fit within your organization. All these things really compound once you actually have the systems in place. So we, we thought of every message as like a long-lived message. It was something that typically when you work with marketing teams, they send a message out and it's very one one time. All of our messages were thought of as, hey, we, we don't want to send the traditional drip campaigns. We don't want to send the traditional one-off change boarding messages to customers. We want to make sure that all of this stuff is long-lived and we'll have compounding value over time. I love the analogy as well of the whisper, like not shouting, uh, just whispering and hitting the right message at the right time. I think it's also an interesting point that you raise as well. And I think this is potentially like a reason like a lot of tools and I imagine as well, like Optimizely and any A-B testing service out there, they're probably sitting on a double-edged sword in the sense that they see churn on one end from a lot of uh, earlier stage companies like tipping off and then also likewise on later stage companies who've maybe used their service in the early days as the team has grown in sophistication, as the needs have grown, as the uh, the product has become more uh, complicated over time, uh, they'll start moving away from them and building their own in-house uh, solutions to serve their needs. Uh, this is definitely a, like a consistent theme. I, I've been speaking to more and more companies uh, lately around this topic, and it seems that there's this progression where uh, you start out, you find a ready-made solution to get you up and running, and then as your team gets up and running and into a good rhythm, you slowly start realizing the shortcomings of these systems. Uh, mm-hmm. And then slowly, like you say, you start building that chest of uh, tools that you're going to use to grow your business the way it should be done. Yeah, and you see a lot of companies spun out from bigger organizations. Like you have a lot of tooling that's coming out of companies like Uber and Airbnb and, and LinkedIn and the Netflix of the world, specifically recently. Because a lot of these companies do have to solve very interesting challenges themselves because there aren't tooling available for them. And we, we see very similar things when we talk to organizations specifically within the data space about either building their own, their own in-house solutions or trying to find something off the shelf and does it work correctly for them. And oftentimes our typical response to them is use what 
is available to you, but think about the long-term cost of ownership. And so for any company looking at adopting tooling, yeah, that's one of the things that I always recommend that they, they think about is do some sort of modeling and forecasting, not just on the growth of their business, but how this tool will evolve with them. I think that's one of the things that's typically companies don't spend enough time thinking about. You know, for obviously we're building a company for other software teams. We tried to make it as easy as possible to navigate that purchasing decision. And when you think about other companies like Optimizely and Segment and Mixpanel and Amplitude and, and Split, there's a lot of companies out there today who are focusing on on solving enterprise features or enterprise problems. There's a lot of companies who are solving, focusing on startup problems. There's this no man's deadline within the mid-market where nobody really wants to play in. But that's really where a lot of the companies are building up their own homegrown solutions. And generally speaking, what I find very interesting is the companies who are building out their homegrown solutions, what are the lessons learned that you can get from them? Because specifically, a lot of companies have unique challenges. And uh, I find that the most fascinating thing when talking to, you know, like a, a 500 person company, like, hey, what are the challenges that you have within growth? Or what are the challenges that you have within data discovery within your organization? Because you'll learn a ton. Absolutely. I think for me personally as well, I'm always of the notion of buy versus build and focus on your core competencies. So when you're looking for solutions out in the market, uh, ultimately, if you can find something that meets 90%, 80% of your needs, it's always going to be better off because it leaves your engineers and your team focused on what matters and the product that you build for your customers. But I think when you get to the scale and size of like Atlassian's or the booking.com's or Uber's and Airbnb's, I think that's when the, the opposite conversation maybe starts to happen and the ROI is going to be a, a lot bigger for you building your own custom in-house uh, solutions. Yeah, and I 100% agree with that sentiment. I think the one thing that is universal is everybody who tries to estimate the cost of building their own solution is off by a factor of 10, <laughs> generally speaking. It's always much harder, speaking from experience, obviously, building tooling and being on teams that build tooling at Alassian is it's always, you're always off by many months, if not years, on the total cost of actually not just building the tooling, but then maintaining it uh, in-house. Absolutely. Cool. I have three more questions because I see we're running up on time. Three sounds like a lot, but we can get through them pretty quick, I'm sure. One question is, what is one thing that you thought you learned at Atlassian that has now proven to be not true starting your own business? I think the one thing that I learned, generally we talk a lot about product-led growth in context of Atlassian and not needing a sales team. There will always be times where you need to get on a call and help educate a customer, help be able to communicate the value that your solution provides. And there's ways to do that, obviously, without a sales team. But I think there's a lot of businesses out there today who are looking to adopt the product like growth flywheel. And my summation at this point is that there are certain businesses where that doesn't align. And so make sure that you're choosing your go-to-market and sales model that aligns best with not just your buyer, but your, your economic buyer and your end user as well. And your channel, for sure. Hmm. Cool. Next question. Let's imagine a hypothetical scenario. You uh, join a new company, churn and retention is not doing great at this company. And the CEO comes to you and says, hey, Patrick, uh, we need to turn things around. We need to do it fast. We have 90 days. Please, can you do something? 
what would you want to be doing in those first 90 days to try and turn things around for the company? Yeah, good question. I'd probably spend the first 30 to 60 days just talking to every single customer I can, both the customers who are getting value from their products and those who have recently churned and just trying to understand the lay of the land. The other thing I'd be doing is probably just trying to go build and establish relationships with my counterparts within the organization to understand, hey, what do you think is working well? What's not working well? Why do you think we have a problem with churn? And then I would tactically go try to make sure that we have in the last 60 days of that time, I would tactically go make sure that we have enough resources in place that we can then go build a roadmap effectively to go run sort of high velocity experiments to actually get some meaningful results. Yeah, I, I don't think this is one of the things where typically teams think that they can have a quick win. I think growth and retention is one of those areas where you're not going to see progress overnight. It's like anything else, it, it's going to take dedicated time and resources. So trying to say, hey, if, if a CEO came to me and said, hey, we want to lower our churn and retention by a factor of two in 90 days, I would not take the job. <laughs> I would say, no, I mean, it's going to take me 30 to 60 days just to get a better lay of the land. It's going to take me, diagnose. you know, diagnose the issues. It's going to take me another 30 to 60, 90 days to build a team around this. And it's going to take me another 30 to 60 days to get some experiments out that we can then analyze the results and impacts from. And it's probably going to be six to nine months before we start seeing any meaningful sort of traction on this area. You know, I'm very much more of the building long-term sustainable teams dedicated to solving these problems. I think that's the only way within an organization to have the level of accountability and enough folks really trying to dig in on what's exactly happening within the business. I'm always the one where I always push for more faster and with less resources. And a lot of the times you'll shoot for the moon and land in the stars. But a lot of the times there are things where you can't take off. You can't make impact within 30 to 60, 90 days, generally speaking. So I'd say be realistic with what your expectations are. I think that is an excellent, excellent uh, message as well. It's definitely something it comes up a bit from different guests, but uh, like often, I think uh, definitely the number one thing everybody talks about is talk to customers, understand, diagnose the problem. And then some of the, like I'd say, the guests that have focused and really spent a lot of their time thinking about the challenge of churn and retention, they're always coming back with the same messages that it's not something that you can impact in 90 days. Yes, sure, there are some quick wins and you could look at to Dunning is probably like the first very common place where people look and it's, you might get like a small percentage move on the metric. But ultimately, if you want to make a meaningful change to turn and retention, it takes time, it takes consistent effort and the iteration to get to a point where you actually start to see results. So, um, 100%. Great message. And then the last question I had for you today is, what's one thing that you today that you wish you knew when you got started tackling churn and retention? I think my one thing that I wish I knew is just to go work with people that are better than me. I think that was the, I had the good fortune of working with a really talented PM at Alassian directly one-on-one. I learned a ton from, from him. I had the good fortune of working with Sean Close. I had the good fortune of working with some amazing people and that really helped accelerate my own learning velocity. And generally speaking, I feel like what I wish I had done earlier is actually just go work for, for folks that I 
consider mentors. You know, I think you know that would be the advice I'd give anybody specifically interested in tech venture and retention is go find and identify the people who are really good at this and just go work for them. And just you know, hell or high water, just go figure out a way to learn as much as you can. A great example, the program that I took, I think you took Andrew as well, is the Reforge program. That was a very much a, a compounded learning that I I'm very grateful for the opportunity that I was able to participate in that program. And I learned a ton, you know, and yep. being able to surround yourself with folks who are experts at what they do, that will rub off. <laughs> You'll be able to take some of that away with you. And I think that's the the one lesson I wish I could have given myself earlier. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the learning and the program you're speaking about specifically as well, I think Reforge, they have a number of different programs, but one of them is retention and engagement as well. Mm-hmm. And the experience is really excellent because like you get to week a week in, week out, spend time with some really top professionals, like talking about the challenge, talking about thing. And also like at least for me personally, I developed some good relationships afterwards from those calls uh, that have really led to some really good and powerful learnings like over the time. So uh, highly recommended as well. Anybody looking for extra training on the topic, definitely check them out. Brian Balfour, Sean Klaus is one of the, uh, and Sean Casey yeah, is the, the three people behind the program. So definitely check that out. Uh, Andrew Chen as well. And Andrew Chen, yeah. So like some of the best names in growth are responsible for building this program from companies like Uber, Pinterest, Atlassian, and so forth. Cool. So uh, we've, we're up on time now, Patrick. It's been a pleasure chatting today. A uh, really interesting conversation. Is there any sort of final thoughts you want to leave with the, the audience with? Anything they should be aware of uh, from your side? Anything to keep an eye on from, from iteratively? No, definitely. We are hiring. So if anybody out there is interested in joining a new high growth stage startup, we're, we're very much rapidly growing and looking for really talented folks. So feel free to get in touch with me at patrick at iterative.ly or find us at iterative.ly as well. Very cool. Thanks so much uh, for joining the show and uh, looking forward to see what's next now on the journey and wish you best of luck. Thanks, Andrew. And that's a wrap for the show today with me, Andrew Michael. I really hope you enjoyed it and you're able to pull out something valuable for your business. To keep up to date with Churn.fm and be notified about new episodes, blog posts, and more, subscribe to our mailing list by visiting churn.fm. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback, good or bad, I would love to hear from you, and you can provide your blunt, direct feedback by sending it to andrew at churn.fm. Lastly, but most importantly, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it and leave a review as it really helps get the word out and grow the community. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.